our task of waiting. We wait for different things, especially at different ages, right? Eliana is anticipating with great eagerness her birthday in one month and five days or whatever it is from today. You ask her about her birthday, she'll tell you she's going to have a birthday cake, she's going to have a water bottle cake, she's going to have, I can't even remember all the things that are going to be on her cake. Her cake is going to be something to behold. Um, she, she, I think her cake description is actually more like her wish list for birthday gifts. And she's kind of getting the two ideas a little mixed up. You know, I, I'm at the point that my birthday is a little closer, but like the anticipation for my birthday is uh, not nearly as much as my anticipation for her birthday because she's going to enjoy her birthday way more than I'm going to enjoy my, my birthday, right? I'm going to enjoy finding ways to, you know, bring about some of those wish list items in her life. And so things change. And, and the text in Hosea is calling upon people to imagine the gut-wrenching pain of somebody who's like Eliana's age or maybe even a little older. If you were to tell them, hey, I know you're getting ready for your eight-year-old birthday party, but we've decided to postpone all birthdays that you're going to have for the next five to ten years. And when you turn 18 or when you turn 13, We'll celebrate all those past birthdays. Just wait. Be patient. We'll get there. You'd have anarchy on your hands, right? Complete, full-out anarchy. Like, any hopes of restoring the day to normalcy would be lost. You would be frustrated. They'd be frustrated. And by the time you did fulfill that promise and, and gave them that 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old birthday when they turned 13, Many of those things that are on their wish list are no longer going to be on their wish list. They're going to open them and they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I wanted that. And Hosea in chapter 3 is doing something very similar where, where he's outlined some really hard times that are going to come upon the nation of Israel. And yet as he concludes that, he's going to say, hey, you just need to wait on the Lord because all these curses they're going to come about you are going to be made not my people the judgment of Jezreel is coming you are not going to be shown mercy but wait wait and as you wait one day God will indeed fulfill his promises to you once again that gut-wrenching pain that they feel, much like our hypothetical eight-year-old, is the same type of emotion. All those promises, the promises that we looked at last week in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, they're not experiencing those. Instead, what they're experiencing are all those curses that we read this morning. Horrible, horrible things. Things that Probably many of us would not even wish upon our worst enemy. Horrible, heartbreaking situations. And what he says is, wait on the Lord. It really is quite similar in many ways to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31. Similar context in which God says to his prophet Isaiah, to his people, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth 
faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God promises, even in Isaiah's day, that there is coming a day in which the Lord will once again restore and repair for his people as he has done. And that the current tribulation, the current heartache, the current pain will be overshadowed by the abounding mercy and care of God. Just wait upon the Lord. And Hosea is going to say something very, very similar in our text this morning. If you would take your Bible and let's read Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. If you would stand with me as we read. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover, and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and loved the raising cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillars, without ephod or teraphim. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You see, the theme of this passage is that God's love is present in our rebellion and in our reconciliation. God's love is present in our rebellion and in our reconciliation. As you look at verse 1, you see this idea that God intends to show love. And so, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord and the children of Israel who look to other gods, and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. See, God introduces us to his love through Hosea's marital love. And he says, hey, Hosea, remember your wife that you took in Hosea chapter 1? I told you she was unfaithful. And she has been unfaithful. She's been horribly unfaithful. You have three kids together, and then she's left you, and she's been apart from you for a long time. Go back, find her, and take her back to yourself. Why? Simply for this reason, Hosea, so that you can illustrate to the nation around you my faithful love to my people. And so he does that. And so what God is doing, he's instructing us that he loves Israel. And specifically that even in the midst of Israel's disobedience, notice he highlights just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raising cakes of the pagans. He highlights that they're not only finding their satisfaction, their hope in those other gods, but they're actually enjoying and relishing in the pleasures that those gods provide. The raising cakes are often used in the ritual worship of the day for the false gods all around them. And so God says that even in their rebellion, his love has never been removed from Israel. Just as they rebelled, and he still loved them, he says, in the same way, you're going to go and take a wife who has rebelled 
who has denied your love, who has denied your affection, and has pursued after other men. In a similar way, you are going to go and you are going to conquer and you are going to show love to her. And God highlights then the abhorrent behavior of the nation of Israel. It really truly is abhorrent because they have abandoned their one true God. If you think about even the, the context that we've read so far in the book of Hosea, the, the Bible has highlighted numerous times that God is the source of provision. We'll look at some of these passages in just a little bit here. And yet they have looked at what God has graciously provided them in their rebellion, and they've denied it, and they've said, you know what? Those are nothing in comparison to the raisin cakes that are over here at the Temple of Baal. And so there's this complete abandonment of God. And yet in the midst of their abandonment of God, what does God say? I intend to show love. I intend to show faithfulness. I intend to make them my people once more. I intend to once again show them in the land. I intend to show them compassion and mercy, even though they are so undeserving of my affection. And so he's going to move on. He's highlighted, he's told us that he intends to show love. And that's in verse 1. In verse 2, he's going to highlight and illustrate this love. Verses 2 and 3, he illustrates his love. God illustrates his love. Notice verses 2 and 3. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. And so there's two different parts to this. The first part is this, that God illustrates his love in Hosea's payment of Gomer's bridal price. Hosea's obedience to the commandment of God is actually quite remarkable. We can look back and we can consider other people who Receive the commands of God, and God has told them in various ways to go and do this or go and do that. And think about how different ones of them have responded to God's instruction in their life. Probably one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament is Moses. And how does Moses respond when God comes to him and says, Hey, look at the miracle that I just did. There's a burning bush that doesn't burn up. You have a special job. Go to Israel and free them from their masters, the Egyptians. And Moses' response is, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God, I can't possibly do it. I wasn't equipped before this happened, and I definitely haven't changed anything in the last ten minutes. You've got to find somebody else. Jeremiah says something else, something very similar. Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Too young, man. Find somebody else who's got a little bit of gray hair. And yet that's not Hosea's response. Moses and Jeremiah are not called to the same, you know, horrible relationship with an unfaithful wife. But Hosea just immediately obeys. It's a beautiful illustration of obedience in the middle of the text. But the primary thing that I think this bridal price idea is seeking to teach is the fact that God loves and cares for his people. If you look back at chapter 2, 
God has illustrated that he's going to restore the people his blessings. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. That's what he promises to give them. And I think that this bridal price, the, the 15 shekels and the homer and a half of barley, this is the illustration for the nation of God's justice, righteousness, loving kindness, and mercy. And he's saying, this is the gift that I'm going to give the future bride to show her that I am a good, loving, kind, compassionate husband. Even though the nation had turned after the false gods and were trusting them for their provision. Notice Hosea chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is where they're turning, right? They're turning to all the false gods, for she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. God gives them good gifts, and what do they do? They take those good gifts and they give them back to the Baals and worship their Baals. And God says, no. Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. That is illustrating here in, in verse 2 this idea of God's giving of good gifts to his people. Probably not a payment to buy her back from prostitution, but rather an abounding illustration of God's love and his faithfulness to his people. That even though they're unworthy, such a bride is not worthy of a generous, lovely gift to demonstrate a husband's undying, unwavering, faithful love for his wife, right? In America, we don't give huge bridal prices. But typically you buy nice golden bands with big rocks that cost a lot of money. Right? That's how we demonstrate love. It would be the equivalent today where somebody goes and they have this wife that runs off and leaves them. The wife has not changed anything in her character. She's still unfaithful. And this guy goes and buys like a $10,000 ring. He's like, I love you. Come and live faithfully with me. And it's just illustrate by a practical way for them to look at and say, look at the love and favor of God. He will come once again. He will show loving kindness. He will show mercy. He will bring justice and righteousness. And he gives them a picture in the life of, Homer, uh, of Hosea and Gomer for them to look at. But notice verse 3 goes on, and it highlights that God is illustrating his love in a portrayal of Hosea and Gomer's uh, future together. You may think that everything's hunky-dory and it's back to normal as soon as this happens. But notice what he says in verse 3. This is an illustration of how this relationship is going to go with God and his people Israel. It's not like they've done their own thing and then there's going to be no consequences. No, there's consequences. There's something that happens as a result of their disobedience. So Hosea says, illustrate God's consequences for the nation of Israel. I said to her, you shall stay with me many days, a long time. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. The normal relationships that you would expect between a husband and wife are not going to happen. There's not going to be the marital intimacy between the two of them. Why? In order to illustrate that something is broken. Yes, God's going to take them back, but it's going to be an extended period of brokenness 
before this happens. And so there's this idea of it's a limited separation, right? It's a long time. It's not for eternity. One day, God will come back, and he's going to restore all the full blessings to the nation of Israel, above and beyond what most of them can even imagine. The kingdom will be established. God will reign through the person of Jesus Christ. And Israel will rejoice and return to their Messiah. It's a limited separation, but also promises that there's a coming reconciliation. This idea is that they're going to stay with him for many days, and there's going to be a, a lack of marital intimacy, but the idea is that at the end of the many days, what's going to happen? There's going to be this reunion of their love together. And God is using this to illustrate, even for us, his love and his care for caring people. Remember, God loves to show his love, not only in our rebellion, but also in our reconciliation. It's not one or the other, it's both. God shows love to rebelling people. He does it by punishment. God also shows love to reconciled people. He does that by reconciling. And so the text is portraying both ideas because both are true. But then the text concludes by telling us that God plans to lovingly restore his people. And this is in verses 4 and 5. That God is going to lovingly restore his people. Verse 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness. God plans to lovingly restore his people. God's restoration will bring Israel through political deprivation. It's going to bring them through political deprivation. Notice you see that in the very first part of verse 4. Without king or prince. Israel longed for a king. God knew that. He wrote Deuteronomy. and As we read through Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see references to a king that they're going to have. And that king is going to be deported along with the people. And here he says, hey, you've depended upon kings. The kings are supposed to help you look to God and follow God. And yet king after king after king has come. And king after king after king has come and led you down the path of unrighteousness. And because the king is not accomplishing its God-given purpose of helping you follow the Lord in obedience, no more kings. But it gets worse, because he doesn't just say no more kings. He says, or prince, right? It's one thing if the king is just killed, and there's a regent for a couple of years, and then there's a prince. At least there's an heir to the throne. There's no heir. You are done. You're not allowing the means by which God gave you to pursue righteousness to be a work in your life. You're using it to follow your own desires no more. So God ends that. But then he also says that God's restoration is going to bring Israel through ritual deprivation. Notice as he highlights the next idea, without sacrifice or sacred rituals. They're supposed to use the religious festivals that the Old Testament gives them 
as a means by which they knew who God was better as they observed the Passover and once again remind each other every year about God passing over and leading them out and bringing them with a mighty arm into the promised land. It was supposed to do what? It was supposed to grow in them a love for God and a hunger for God and a desire to follow in obedience. And instead of using those various times as a means to know and to love and obey God better, they used those as means to pursue pagan rituals full of immorality and debauchery. And God says, once again, the purpose has been completely abandoned. You haven't used it right. You're going to lose it. No more sacred rituals. No more times of sacrifice. But God goes on and he says, God's restoration will also bring about spiritual darkness. You see, the ephod contained the Urim and the Thummim. So he says they're going to lose the ephod or the teraphim. And so, uh, spiritual darkness. Sorry. Bring Israel through spiritual darkness. The last one was uh, ritual deprivation. Hopefully that helps. Uh, Leviticus 8, 7 through 8. And he put the tunic on him, this is Aaron, girded him with a sash, clothed him with a robe, and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. And he put the breastplate on him, and he put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate. Okay. And these were things that were used to determine God's will. How do you know what God wants? Well, there's numerous times in the Old Testament where it talks about them using the Urim and the Thummim to determine what God wanted for the names. Such as Numbers chapter 27, verse 21. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. God's going to show them what they're supposed to do through these means. And notice what the text says in Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. Without ephod or teraphim. And so God is saying, hey, there's going to be a time of spiritual darkness. Right now you guys have God's word. Hosea is here telling you what God wants you to do, but you don't care. You're going to keep living in disobedience. So if you're going to live in disobedience, regardless of whether or not I speak to you, Spiritual darkness is what it is. I'm not going to speak. We're done. It looks pretty bleak, pretty dark at this point, right? There's not much hope. But the promised deprivations leave Israel without hope apart from the unique working of God on their behalf. There is hope because God plans to let them because God intends to show love. Despite their disobedience, despite their rebellion, God will show love once again. God will show mercy once again. And so verse 5. In verse 5, the Lord anticipates a full restoration. A full restoration. Notice the, the richness of verse 5. It is immensely rich in its description of the full restoration. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and 
his goodness in the latter days. Notice the first thing that he highlights is this idea that full restoration is going to include genuine repentance. Full restoration includes genuine repentance. After the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. It, it really is a play on words, I believe. The Hebrew makes it abundantly clear. The English completely loses it. But in verse 4, it says, They will dwell many days without king or prince. And the word they will dwell and the word they will return look like identical in Hebrew. It's different vowels, but the letters that you see when you're reading it are the same letters. And so he's making this beautiful picture. This is the one hand. You're going to dwell without king, without prince, without sacrifice, without sacred pillar, without um, uh, ephod or teraphim, or teraphim. But you will return. And when you return, it's going to be full, beautiful repentance. You see, their repentance is going to be characterized with a return to the Lord, but also a fresh pursuit of the Lord and his king David. Notice 429-31, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful he will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. What are the covenants? Covenant to Abraham? Covenants about the land? Also the covenant to David. Right? There will be a king to sit on your throne forever. Where is that king when they return? Where is that king when they seek him? They're going to seek him and they're going to find him. And they're going to find him in none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And he will sit on the throne of Israel for 1,000 years. You see, it's a full repentance. It's a repentance that realizes their desperate strait. And it realizes that they are in desperate need of God. And that only he could provide for them what they desperately need. It's a complete turning to realizing that their sin is completely repulsive to God, it's abhorrent to God, they can't live there anymore. And there's no hope in it. But with God, there is rich mercy, abounding grace. And so they turn to him. But notice also, the restoration will include the fear of the Lord. But don't stop there. It includes the fear of the Lord and his goodness. It's a strange thing to fear, right? Why do you fear the goodness of God? Why do you fear the goodness of God? Fearing the Lord, that makes sense. We hear that a lot, right? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Why do they fear his goodness? I think the reason why they fear his goodness is they've gone through all those horrible things. All the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 68 that we read this morning. Keep that all in mind. 
all his goodness. Because it's through those hardships that he does what? He helps them to realize their depravity and to realize their need of him. It's the goodness of God. Them returning to the land is also the goodness of God. But the goodness of God, as they see it in this day, is going to be such a contrast that it's going to lead them to a great fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10 says, Especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will tell, let them hear my words they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. And in chapter 4, verse 10, God says, hey, call the people so that they can learn to fear me by obeying. And the people gather. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the people gather, and as they gather, Moses is talking to them, I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. They're afraid. They're like, we are fearful. It's the wrong kind of fear. It's not the kind of fear that leads you to obedience and love of God. It's the kind of fear that leads you to withdrawing from God. And so he goes on in chapter 5, verse 6 and onwards, and he once again gives for them the, the commandments. And then at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me always and keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. You see, obedience stems from true fear and love. Notice how he concludes this whole idea in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 2 and 5, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, and your sons, and your grandsons, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Verse 3, therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. A land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. return to God is going to realize who God is. The God is a God who is worthy of your love. He's worthy of your reverence. But he's also worthy of your fear. Because if you disobey, God is willing to stop at nothing to bring you back to righteousness. And so they fear his goodness. It's actually a different word than what we typically read in the Old Testament. It's the word that is the idea of trembling or dreading before somebody. That's the word that Hosea uses. Because all of a sudden, their understanding of who God is, the abounding mercy and grace of God, the compassion of God, but also understanding that God is not a God who delights in people's sins. And if you choose to live in disobedience, if you choose to pursue that path, the goodness of God demands that he punish you. And when he punishes, it can be as severe as Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 28. And so they fear. They fear the Lord. 
They also fear his goodness and salvation. See, God has a plan to lovingly restore us. It's a beautiful text that, that once again helps us to once again understand the severity of our sin and the desperate strait we put ourselves in if God needs to punish us. But also reminds us of God's abounding mercy, that he is rich in love and compassion, that he, he desires with great affection to restore his people. It helps us to once again focus in on who our God is, to understand who he is. And as we understand who he is, it teaches us how we are to respond to him. Sin in our lives will not be tolerated. But as we come before him, as we return and we seek him, guess what? He is more than happy to receive us, to welcome us, to offer us his mercy, his compassion, and to plant us once again. It's a beautiful text. And so the text teaches us that God loves his people despite their rebellion. God loves you despite your rebellion. And the Bible tells us that whether you know it or not, you either are or you were in rebellion against God. We were enemies of God. We were separated far off from God. But God, in his rich mercy, while we were yet sinners, sent Christ to die for your sins. Maybe you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you're still lost in your sins. And what Hosea 3, 1 through 5 would teach you is that God loves you despite your rebellion. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for your sins. And then are you going to continue to persist in your rebellion, in your disobedience, pursuing your own way, or are you willing to humble yourself and turn to God in repentance and faith? God loves despite our rebellion. But God also loves and pursues the restoration of his people. The text highlights this over and over again. That God is seeking to restore his people. Yes, he must punish. But he delights in restoring. God's love should motivate my obedience and repentance. This text once again highlights for us anew just how mighty and good our God is. Yes, he sees sin and he cannot tolerate sin. But he also delights in showing mercy and grace to those who are far off by bringing them near and offering them his son. And then finally, God's love accomplishes my restoration. You know, it's not through my, my effort, it's not through your effort that you are restored to God. It's not our own doing that reconciles us to God. It's God's work in bringing you It's through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that you can be reconciled. It's not your doing. It's his doing. And there's great hope in that. Because I don't have to rest in, I don't have to have confidence in my own actions, in my own ability. I can have confidence and rest in the peace that God promises through his son, Jesus Christ. Because if my hope was found in my ability to somehow work behind the scenes, politically maneuvering to get God's favor... I'd be sunk. But God is working to restore his people. And so my confidence, my hope, is not found in me, it's found in Christ. And there's great hope, there's great comfort in that. 
Father, we do thank you for the fact that you are a God who delights in restoring your people. You're a God who delights in showing mercy to your people. We pray that as we think through Hosea chapter 3, as we meditate upon our own sin, as we meditate upon your own mercy, your compassion, and your desire to bring people back to yourself, to bring us to a place of obedience and submission to you. We pray that this text would overwhelm us with, yes, the harshness of punishment, but also the abounding mercy and grace that's available in you. We pray that we would turn to you, we would receive the forgiveness for our sins, that we would repent of our sins, and that we would choose to follow you in humble and willful obedience. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to die for us, and that it's not our own efforts, but it's you. You have provided the means for us to be reconciled to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Our closing song is And